You're listening to Rebel Radio. Do dope shit. What's going on, everyone? Uh, my name is Michael Patella. I am the owner and founder of Common. You are listening to episode eight of Rebel Radio. And this is a special episode because this is the last episode of 2021. We're in the week between Christmas and New Year. And this is just one of those weird weeks where you don't know if you're working. You don't know if you should be celebrating. You don't know if you should be eating a bunch of crap. It's just a really weird time for people to navigate their fitness. So I always say to my clients, take this time to recharge, get yourself focusing on the new year because they've worked so hard over the course of the year that one week off won't really hurt them. But really take this opportunity to start thinking about what you want to achieve in 2022 with your fitness goals. Um, it's a, it's just a really good time to look down the mountain of the year and where you've um, succeeded, where you failed, where you can improve on, and, and then you can hit the ground running uh, in 2022 in the new year. So this episode um, is, is a solo cast. I have no guests here tonight. It's just going to be me um, in the studio kind of shooting some shit about fitness and the new year and all the stuff that comes across um, on, on socials with fitness and your resolutions. I also asked you guys yesterday on uh, on Instagram, what are some fitness myths that you believed that weren't really true? And, and a lot of you gave me uh, some really great, um, some really great myths that we're going to talk about in this episode. And then we're going to elaborate on some stuff because like everything in fitness, there's some nuance and context to a lot of these myths. You can't just believe one thing. There's always going to be different things that arise based off of your goals who you are, um, what your experience is, and a bunch of other stuff that we uncover in an assessment. A really good assessment should tell you um, your movement capabilities, your training history, your injury history, and a whole host of other things that allow us, the coach, to give you the best plan possible to attack your goals. Our goal as trainers, or at least here at Common, is to make sure that we get to your goal as quickly and as efficiently as possible. I'm not here to waste your time. I'm not here to waste my time. I want to make sure that we uh, get to your goal in a really, really good way. Um, so yeah, without further ado, let's get into it. Now, I'm going to provide some context here. I'm going to look at my phone and uh, open up Instagram because there's a bunch of good myths here. Some are funny, but also kind of need some elaboration. So we're going to talk about all of them. And... Um, Let's get into the first one. The first one, actually two people mentioned this. The first one is weights make me bulky. Now I imagine this is coming from a female perspective because most guys don't mind getting bulky with weights, right? That's kind of most of our goals as, as men is to get pretty beefy and bulky. So this probably goes more towards the female side of things. Um, you know, one, so one person said weights make me bulky. Another um, person said lifting weights as a female will make you bulky. So I'm going to assume this is coming from a female standpoint. Now, I feel like people talk about this a lot, but I'm going to kind of give my little um, twist on it and kind of give you my insights as to kind of like the muscle building conundrum with females. Now, what tends to happen when when females start to lift weights or it, and this has been my experience too, is because I, I train a lot of females, um, particularly in the beginning of their uh, of their journey, they tend to come to me and say, hey, Mike, 
Um, I love this. I love your training. This is great. I'm having a blast, but I'm gaining weight. I, I step on the scale and I'm gaining weight and I don't know why, you know, like it must be because I'm building muscle and I'm like, well, what's your secret? Because I'm trying to build muscle and I can't build it for the life of me. So you'll probably have some anabolic hormone, uh, mystery system that, that I don't even know about. Like, let me know because I want what you're taking. And so most females don't have enough testosterone or growth hormone to build that much muscle. Let's even take a step back. In order for you to build a lot of muscle requires much, much, much more effort than what people think. In fact, um, if, if you take someone and you put them in a perfectly programmed um, training program over a course of one year. They take in all the proper requirements of, of protein. They take in good nutrition. They're tracking their calories in a surplus because they want to build muscle. Their recovery is impeccable. They're doing everything to a T for one whole year and everything's perfect. Typically what you'll see in men is you'll gain what? I think eight to 10, maybe 12 pounds of muscle in one year. And that's if you're doing everything perfect with females it's going to be a little bit less just because of the growth hormone aspect of of of, of their physiology but typically they're going to be a little bit less over the course of one year so like that's not a lot of muscle if you think about how much weight you can gain just from over consuming on on foods like you can gain fat a lot more quickly than than muscle so what tends to happen is when 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 females start training there's a bit of a psychological effect that happens and also a physiological um, um, impact that it has on, on, on your system. From a psychological standpoint, what might happen, and I've seen this happen with a couple of my female clients, is they start working out and because they're, they're working out and they assume, because most people will overestimate how much calories they're burning, and they also underestimate what they're eating. And so what might happen is these, these people, these females will say, Hey, I worked out really hard today. I'm going to have an extra piece of whatever, an extra piece of pizza, or I'm going to have my dessert tonight because I earned it. I earned it. Excuse me. And that can get into a vicious cycle of you just putting on weight because you are telling yourself, Hey, I deserve to eat this because I earned it through this workout. Another thing that might happen is when you start to um, weight, especially specifically when you weight train, what might happen is uh, in the early beginnings, in the first few weeks or so, you're going to start um, uh, putting on some water weight because you're going to fill up your muscles with glycogen. And part of the glycogen is also storing some fat. Uh, sorry, you're going to store some water in your muscle alongside of the glycogen and it kind of makes you feel a little bit more full in the muscle so you're also going to gain some water weight um, when you start weight training that tends to level off after a while also another aspect of what happens when you start gaining some weight when you, you start lifting weights is your your metabolism speeds up to the point where you get more hungry so your appetite is usually going to increase, especially if you're doing more of a higher intensity type of training, your body's going to want more fuel and it's going to make you a little bit more hungry. So you might eat more portions. So most of this happens 
based off of the fact that um, you're you're just either consuming more calories because psychologically you say, hey, I earned this cheesecake. Um, physiologically, uh, your body just needs more fuel, so you get more hungry. Um, and also the, um, the 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 water retention that you take or that you that you get from weight training and glyph glycogen stores. So that's one of the reasons why women think that they get bulky. Another aspect also is that, and I suspect that people or, or females, when they say they don't want to get bulky, is they look at bodybuilders on social media. They look at either men bodybuilders, which is not a good comparison, or they look at females such as CrossFit athletes that are at their uh, peak of performance. They look at bodybuilders up on stage and they're like, I don't want to get that bulky. And what most people don't realize is that there's two things that happen. Well, number one, that person that is a bodybuilder on stage has dedicated her life to waking up early, getting her training in, making sure that her nutrition's on point, making sure that her, her recovery's on point. And chances are she's also on some type of performance enhancing drug, which can increase muscle mass. So most females don't have to worry about um, getting bulky with, with weight training. I've always, I've always kind of said this as a joke, but it kind of does, does kind of bring true is that, and, I, and what I say is weight training doesn't make you bulky. Cupcakes and wine make you bulky. So just a lot of people just have really shitty nutrition habits that they assume they can do because they're working out. And most people think they can out train a bad diet and that couldn't be further from the truth because like, like we all know, whoever's listening right now knows that you can consume a shit ton of calories in a matter of five minutes. Like, fuck, you can drink a thousand calories within, what, 10, 15 minutes? Dude, I can I can crush a Little Caesars hot and ready and crazy bread in 20 minutes, maybe not even 15 minutes. In fact, I, I even calculated it. So I remember back in university, I would always... So at the end of the last exam, uh, whether it was um, for the Christmas break or for it was at the end of the year, the very last exam that we had, me and a few buddies, we would go um, to Little Caesars, we'd grab a hot and ready and a crazy bread, and we would just smash it. And I remember one time, I'm like, how many calories did I just eat? So I went on the nutrition calculator for Little Caesars, and I think I consumed, I think it was like 3,200 calories for the medium hot and ready and the crazy bread. And I'm like, I just consumed 3,200 calories in like a matter of 15 minutes because I was starving. So like you can obviously understand that you can overeat more than you burn. In order for me to burn 3,200 calories, fuck, like I'd have to be working out all day. So that, that whole thing is, is sort of debunked as well, right? So people just have to understand that weights don't make you bulky unless you are over consuming in the calories. Now, when, when women say that they, they feel bulky when they weight train, what they're really saying is that they're just gaining fat. And when you gain fat on top of muscle, you're going to feel bulky and bloated. But just part of, it's just part of the process, right? So, so you have to manage your nutrition to make sure that you don't get quote-unquote bulky. I hope that kind of made sense. I spent a lot of time on this. Let's move on. Now, um, oh, this is a good one. So uh, I'm going to say his name because he's going to love it. Uh, so Lou Bombs, and he's he's obviously joking here. So Lou Bombardier from New York says, 
girls will get with you when you work out. I mean, like, let's face it. I think every dude started working out because we wanted to get girls, right? I think that's just a common thing, especially when you're in, like, your early 20s, late teens. It's like, oh, we're bulked up, and all the, all the girls are going to fucking, you know, get after me. It's like, yeah, I'm going to get all the women. And I don't know about you guys, but I got none of them. So there's that myth debunked. I mean, hey, look, if you were somebody who did get girls because you worked out, what's your secret? Let me know. Like, was it your biceps? Was it your abs? Was it your shoulders? What is it that makes women like men who work out? Now, while this is a myth, while like going to the gym and getting big and bulky probably won't get you the girls, I think there's some truth to to this sort of um, myth, if you want to call it a myth, because when you start working out as a as a as a male, especially if you if you walk into a gym and you have a low self esteem or low confidence, what can happen when you start lifting weights is you start to kind of get some swagger back in your step. You start to get some confidence and you start noticing that you're changing and that your body composition is changing. You're getting some muscle that can have a big impact on your self esteem, your self worth and your confidence and if a woman if you meet a woman anywhere she will pick up on your confidence and your self-esteem and she'll be like holy shit i don't know what it is but i want that i mean that's at least in my experience right so if you're confident i think you and this probably goes the same thing with females right like when a female's confident there's nothing more attractive than a confident female a confident female who has a strong opinion about whatever it is in life i love that that's a little tip for y'all out there. Confidence in a woman is is uh, attractive. And I imagine the same thing with, with, with men. So, like, it is kind of a myth. Like, I don't think, I mean, I never got girls when I started working out. But I think the confidence is what gets you, um, is what gets you the girls. I don't know. I'm not a dating expert. I'm just a guy that likes to talk shit about stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, it's a myth, but not really a myth. It's going to be a bit of both because... I believe that working on yourself, whether it's working on your career, working um, on your on your health, on your fitness, on something that you're passionate about, that can exude some confidence. And that confidence is how you get the girls, y'all. Um, so let's move on here. But that was a, that was a good question, Luke. Thank you for that. Um, was it, so <laughs> this goes from Lou Bombardier as well from New York. If you put your weights back, you get cancer. So... I know he's joking here, but this is a really good thing because I don't know what it is, man. People don't want to fucking put their weights away. There's there's nothing worse in a gym, in a busy, crowded gym when you're trying to get to the hack squad or the leg press and there's fucking like 10 plates aside on this fucking leg press. And you're like, dude, like my workout is me pressing this leg press, not fucking taking your weights off. Um, so I, I can't stand when people don't take their weights off. And, and one step even further, because I own a gym, even if somebody doesn't put, even if somebody puts their weights away, but they don't put it exactly where they took it from, fuck, that irritates me. And like, there'd be so many times during classes here, I'd be like, yo, put this exactly where you put it. And I'm kind of OCD that way. I'm kind of like neurotic that way. But like, I just like a nice, clean, organized gym. Same thing with like, if, if you're at a squat rack and instead of putting the plate on the pin, 
you just kind of let it sort of sit against it on the floor. It's like, dude, like an extra 20 seconds, not even an extra five seconds could have put that plate on the weight. Another pet peeve of mine that I can't stand is when you have um, like the, the, the weight trees and you'll have like a five pound plate, then a 25 pound plate, another 10 pound plate, and then a 45. It's like, no, 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 no. Put the 45s all in one shot, put the fives up top, put the tens below it, like organize it because it makes for a more efficient workout. It looks better in the, in the, in the atmosphere of the gym. It looks a lot nicer. It looks a lot neater. And I know for me, when I have a clean environment, whether it's a clean kitchen, a clean office or a clean desk, a clean gym, I can work better. I can produce and create more. So it's 2022. Let's start putting our weights back. I don't care how strong you are or how tired you are. Just fucking put your shit away. Um, and this is the last... This is the last myth from Lou Bombardier from New York. <laughs> I haven't read these yet, guys. So I'm just reading them live as we go. So I'm just still going to say it and talk about it. If I wear only Gymshark, everything else looks and gets better. Now, I used to be into Gymshark way back when they first came out. I remember going to the Arnold's in Ohio back in 2017, I think it was. Um, and they had the Gymshark booth. And this was when Gymshark was was pretty much, um, I think they were relatively new in 2017. They might have been a year or two old. Uh, but that's when they had all like the YouTube influencers that they sponsored. So I'm trying to remember their names. Um, the Hodge twins were there. Um, Nikki Black, Blackletter, Blackletter. She was dating the guy from Alpha Elite. What's his name? Um, Christian Guzman. So he was sponsored by Gymshark and his girlfriend, Nikki at the time was there and a bunch of other influencers. And I remember being like, Oh my God, this is so cool. So I bought a Gymshark zip up. And what's cool about Gymshark is that they are a UK based company. So they had a very like, um, kind of European cut tailored sort of fit, which I kind of like because like I'm short, right? I'm five, seven, not that big. So like, I like a nice, tight pant, nice tight fitting jacket. But anyways, so I bought a medium size zip up from Gymshark. Didn't try it on, so I'm like, yeah, I'm a medium. I brought it home and it was the tightest thing ever. So I'm like, I wore it for maybe about a week or two because I washed what I ate and I wasn't bloated. But then like the moment I got a little more chubby, it wouldn't zip up. So anyways, that, I won't make that mistake. But now Gymshark has become this like world empire. I think it's like a, like a I don't know if it's, if it's worth a billion dollars now, but it's 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 all over the world now. And Gymshark just has that that air about them where it's like, hey, like if I were a Gymshark, I'm gonna look good because it's like Lululemon pants way back when Lululemon was actually like really good. Now they're probably I'm not sure if they're if they're as good as they used to be, but Gymshark has now taken over where it's like it makes the female glutes look a lot nicer, even if she doesn't even have nice glutes, it just kind of like lifts it up. And I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. The Gymshark pant where like you see the booty and it sort of perks it up because um, it's all about show. But again, like this is where I sort of understand this because when you start looking good, you also feel good about yourself. When you feel good about yourself, you perform better. You're more confident. Maybe you 
work um, in your career a little bit better. Maybe you're a better human. I don't know. I'm, I'm really reaching here, but there is something about looking good because I like looking good and I get motivated when I look good. But sometimes Gymshark people just seem kind of fake. Again, I'm just generalizing here um, and I'm just speaking my mind. And if you hate me, does it matter? But there's, there's always that quintessential person that works out that wears Gymshark and just has that air about them. Not everybody, but there are some. And um, hey, teach their own, man. Like, don't. I'm not hating. I'm just. Say, I'm just kind of saying what people are thinking. And I know Lou. I know Lou thinks this as well. So I'm kind of putting him under the bus. I'm throwing him under the bus and uh, kind of blaming him for this. But I'm just reading what he wrote on on my story here. But if I wear only Gymshark, everything else looks and gets better. So I mean, like. Maybe from a confidence mental standpoint, yeah, things get better because you feel confident. Um, but that doesn't mean you should be a douchebag in the gym. And it's and it's these people that don't put their weights away. There's there's that like douchebag. And like douchebag, I also mean the female version of a douchebag, douchebagette, where they're just kind of like, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. I'm I'm gonna move on from this question before I get get bombarded with comments about how insensitive I am. Um, ooh, this one's a good one. Okay, so this is from a former client of mine. She's kind of a solo client. And uh, I remember uh, talking to her about this in one of our um, sort of check-ins. And like, it's pretty cool that like I get to impact people that genuinely believe that certain things do work. And when you talk through it with somebody, it really makes a difference in their perspective of health and fitness. So uh, she goes, uh, waist trainers and jiggling machines. Now, everybody knows. I think. I think by now, everybody knows what a waist trainer is. It's those. It's those like belts where you wrap it around your stomach. I think some waist trainers you also put some type of cream or gel that's supposed to increase water loss or something like that. I don't know. Don't don't quote me on that. But these waist trainers essentially are you wrap it tight around your waist, and you, and you always see like the people that do it on these commercials. You see like the really super hot fit woman who puts on this belt and then you have this really shredded, you know, dark and handsome man with a six pack and chiseled as he's wrapping this, this, um, as he's wrapping this thing around his waist with this cheesy smile to the camera. And then like they're working out doing some stupid workout like on Stairmaster or they're doing some fucking battle ropes because that's obviously going to be in in some type of fitness commercial. So like, they're doing battle ropes and doing cheesy push-ups, smiling to the camera. And then they take off this belt and like just sweat everywhere. And, like they're like their whole abdomen is glistening with six-pack and that doesn't work, guys. And even if it does make you lose weight, you're losing water weight. And it might not make you feel bloated, right? So like, I'm sure if you're bloated and you wrap this thing tightly around your waist and you sweat, you're probably going to lose some water in that area and it's going to, it's going to assume, or it's going to feel like you've lost weight or inches, quote unquote inches. But when you drink your water, it's going to go back there. It's not going to burn fat, but people still love this shit. Like people just swear by it. And like, hey, like if if wearing this waist trainer makes you work harder 
and it makes you eat better, then hey, more power to you. But it's not that that is specifically helping you with the result. It's most likely your nutrition, your lifestyle habits, and your training. You can't skirt around those three things. Um, so like waist trainers are a waste of time <laughs> and money. So don't do that. Or do it. I don't care if you do it. I'm not going to hate on you. I'm just going to talk shit a little bit. Uh, what's the next one here? Ooh, this one's a really good one. If you don't eat protein right after the workout, you will lose your gains. Now this one, actually, I've had a few conversations about this with a few people on my, on my Instagram, um, through DM. And sometimes it's difficult through DM to convey all of the nuance and all of the context, um, that is needed. Um, and I remember I even reverted to like just voice messaging because it was easier for me to get this over through voice than through texting. So um, let me unpack this. So what, what's happened most of the time or what's happened in the industry is that uh, as, as fitness marketing and, and the rise in sort of um, uh, fitness products and supplementation and all that stuff, probably like in what, like the 80s, early 90s, uh, like a lot of the bodybuilders were the ones that were consuming a lot of these protein shakes and these supplements. And so companies used fitness marketing as a way to make money. And so while people were taking in, you know, protein powders and drinks and other supplementation, uh, they're like, hey, like have it right after your workout, have it right before your workout, drink it before bed. And it's like they're giving you all these indications as to when to have it so that you would consume more of those products, thus having to buy more and more because you're consuming a lot of them. So it's kind of more of like a marketing ploy. And then with the research backing is that like you can pretty much find research to back almost every claim. And if you can't find research to back up a claim, you can probably pay someone to do research to back up a claim, right? So like you can pretty much make anything up if you give enough money to the whole system. Um, but I'm not getting down to that rabbit hole at all. So like part of it was, was having, you know, um, a lot of companies were saying, Hey, like you have this anabolic window, like within 30 minutes of your training, you better take in this protein. Otherwise you're going to lose the window of gains and you will, lose all this muscle mass and then you're going to fuck off, which I mean, like it's got some nuance and context in, in the sense of like, should you take, so, so I guess the research that's been coming out now, um, and, uh, people that are really good at this are, um, Alan Aragon and, uh, Brad Schoenfeld. They do a lot of studies on muscle mass, um, uh, muscle building, nutrition timing around, um, the anabolic window and stuff. And like, as a rule of thumb, I'm going to kind of backtrack here. Like, as a rule of thumb, when we're trying to gain weight, we need to be in a surplus of calories to make sure that we can build. Okay. So that's kind of step one is be consistently in a surplus so that your body has enough energy to build muscle. So that's step one. Now, that's kind of like pillar number one is being a surplus. I don't care if you're eating Snickers and pizza, just being a surplus at least with your training. Pillar number two would be being a surplus plus now you're going to also be consuming X amount of grams of protein. Now this is always debatable with how much protein we need, but as a rule of thumb, 
we've always said, so, so I remember back in my human physiology and exercise phys classes, um, like the, 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 the minimum amount that you should be having for a general adult that is not um, active, that just needs health benefits, you're going to need, uh, I think it was 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. So you would do 0.8 times whatever weight you're in kilograms. And so like for a guy that is like my size, it'd be like 50, 60 grams of protein, not even like 50, 40 to 50 grams of protein, which doesn't seem like much, right? But that's just for general basic health, which is like making sure that you can have your enzymes running, your immune system, your bones, your hair. But that's at like very, very like non-active levels. But now as more research is coming out, there, there is, you know, and everyone's heard, you know, the one gram per pound of body weight. Um, now this has a little bit more nuance. So like now people are saying more like one gram per pound of lean body mass. Now obviously you need either a DEXA scan or some type of um, uh, body mass index uh, to, to figure out like what your lean mass is. But cause if you get somebody that who is severely overweight and let's say they weigh 400 pounds we're not going to have 400 grams of protein like that's obviously not needed so typically what you would do is you would do like you know one gram per pound of lean body mass and you can always kind of estimate that the leaner you are and the more active you are you can go towards like one gram per pound upwards of like 1.2 1.5 i know you know some bodybuilders will take in like two grams uh per pound of body weight but they're they're, they're, they're training hard they're recovering hard and and they're on all this extra stuff um, so that they can get that extra percent in in, in physique changes. Um, guys, I'm going all over the place with this. Okay, so 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 like you know, pillar one is calorie surplus. Otherwise, you won't build anything, no matter how much protein you're eating. Pillar number two, okay, uh, surplus, and also add now uh, one gram per pound of body weight. Let's just call it that: one gram of protein per pound of body weight. Now, what matters most when it comes to seeing long-lasting physique changes is consistently hitting a surplus with your protein requirements, and that's how you build your muscle. If you're taking in regular amounts of protein throughout the day, it doesn't really matter if you eat it after your workout. Typically, you're going to see that you should have a meal about an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours prior to your training, and it's going to have some protein. And then you're probably going to have a meal after your workout within an hour or two hours. That should be enough protein in your system to create that muscle, uh, that protein synthesis. And um, you should be having regular feedings of protein, like four to six hours, or every four to six hours, you should have a feeding of protein in your system and that's what drives optimal protein synthesis now if you're not so you know and so he, he, here's the nuance in this okay and i'm kind of i'm gonna sort of kind of talk this out a little bit. if you are training in a fasted state so let's say you wake up in the morning and you work out at 6 a.m like you're you, you, you're probably not even hungry so let's say you get to the gym you just have a black coffee and you're training um, you know, you have this really intense workout, you're, you're, you're doing a full body strength workout. Like, yeah, you probably should be eating carbs and protein immediately after your training, just because you want to fuel yourself. Now, let's say you are training at 2 p.m. 
in the afternoon and you had a big breakfast with some protein in there um, and then by like let's say 11 30 or noon you have a lunch and there's lots of protein and you get some carbs in there the digestion of that protein takes longer than two hours so you're, you're going to have amino acids in your bloodstream by 2 p.m that you're not going to have to like worry about your protein consumption post workout you're still going to have enough protein in your system so you could probably eat an hour or two after your session and be totally fine i think people miss the forest through the trees by thinking that i have to have this anabolic window otherwise i lose my gains and like if you're already having the proper surplus of calories and you're taking in one gram per pound of body weight if you're going to eat your protein right after your training session it's not going to hurt you do it if it makes you feel better do it but if you're somebody who isn't in a surplus and isn't even taking in a gram per pound gram per pound of body weight of protein then no amounts of anabolic window or eating right after your workout is going to make any real significant changes in your body composition so this is where you have to really look at the macro aspect is are you taking in consistently enough calories to build and are you taking in consistently throughout the day one gram of protein per pound of body weight if that's a yes you are taking care of everything you need if you're neurotic or if you're just that type of person's ocd and you need to eat right after a workout go for it like it's not it's not a bad thing but the fact that you that people say that you need to that's where it's wrong like for example like when i work out typically just the way it falls i usually work out in the like early afternoon so um i'll have a meal at like let's say noon protein carbs fats okay i'll digest a little bit and then i'll i'll, I'll train oh just for the sake of ease because usually i'll work out and then i have some coaching clients right after my session i will have a protein drink right after my session not because i think i have this anabolic window and if I miss it, I'm going to lose all these gains. It's just because for practical reasons, I can't have a meal. So I'm going to have a protein drink, carbs and, and protein, and then I can go training. It's just, it's a, it's a convenient thing for me to do. Not because I have to, because it's a, it's a, it's a window of opportunity to make all these gains. So like in a nutshell, I know I'm spending way too much time on this. In a nutshell, um, don't miss the forest through the trees. Think more of the macro first. And then once you can master the basics and the, and the, and the macro details of, of, your, of your lifestyle, then you can start nitpicking and introducing things that work for you. You can kind of do some trial and error on that. But anytime I'm coaching somebody brand new into training, lifestyle, fitness, that kind of stuff, if I bombard them with all this extra shit that, that is going to overwhelm them, I'm doing a disservice to them. We start with the pillars that are going to make them successful first. Let them learn those habits and then we introduce more and more variables to that. So um, really good question or really good myth. Um, let's keep this going. Um, okay, another one was I must eat 30 minutes after a lift. So again, same thing. I just rewind this 10 minutes and, and you're gonna you're, you're gonna listen to it again. So again, you you don't have to eat 30 minutes after a lift. However, if you haven't eaten in five hours, you might want to eat after that lift. So again, there is some context to that, but if you're doing everything right and you're over and you're consuming the surplus of calories and you're eating your one gram per pound of body weight, chill. Like you can go home after the gym and not worry that while you're driving, you're losing gains. You're not going to do that. 
<clears throat> All right, so this one here, this one's a good one. I actually like this one a lot. I haven't really talked about this much because, um, I don't know, I just haven't. Uh, let me grab a sip of coffee first because I need my caffeine gains. Mm-hmm. Coffee's so delicious right now. All right, so this next myth is a good one. So BCAAs. So the person only wrote BCAAs. Now, this one's kind of, I'm not going to say it's controversial. It's just like, again, people are missing the forest through the trees. Now, what does BCAA stand for? It stands for branch, branch chain amino acids. And there is leucine, isoleucine, and valine. Those are the three uh, BCAAs that most people consume, you know, in and around their workouts. And branched chain amino acids are what you would consider essential amino acids. There's nine, uh, there's nine essential amino acids that the body cannot produce. We need to take in through exogenous um, form or, or, or by, by eating, by consuming. Uh, and then there's the other uh, amino acids that your body can produce naturally. So, um, BCAs or amino acids are the building blocks of protein. Now, when you look at amino acids, or if you're consuming amino acids, um, you, your body's going to take the amino acids and construct whatever protein it needs to construct in order to um, to do whatever process in your body, whether it's a, a an, an immune um, sort of protein, if it's an enzyme, if it is um, protein from your protein, if it's okay, the build protein, if it's like a muscle uh, protein to get into muscle recovery, like your body's gonna figure out where these amino acids have to go. And that's why we need enough protein consumption throughout the day in order for everything in your body to be processed. If you're only taking in a small amount of protein, well, your body is going to prioritize that protein for the most essential things that you need for survival. And I hate to break it to you, you don't need muscle mass for your body to survive. Is it good for longevity? Of course, and we, and we know that. But from a physiological evolutionary standpoint, your body doesn't give a fuck about carrying muscle mass. It cares about it cares about um, you know it being alive and having an immune function and enzymes and all that kind of stuff. So that's why we say, hey, taking one gram per pound of body weight that way, once all the processes are taken care of for survival. Now your body can take extra protein and build muscle with it. So the the the, the common use of BCAAs is for people or, or people think that hey, like if I take in BCAAs during my workout, I'm going to uh, preserve my muscle from being catabolized, 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 whatever, broken down. Uh, it, it's gonna it's gonna preserve my muscle from being broken down in my body so that way I can make all the fucking gains. Now, I believe it's leucine that is a driver in muscle protein synthesis, the creation of, or, 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 or the, the, the thing that turns on uh, muscle building or synthesis, you know, the creation of. Um, leucine has been proven to um, increase the synthesis of, of protein. And if I don't recall, this is going back to like, 2005-ish in my human or in my exercise physiology class, but I, I think it was with Dr. Keno. Uh, anybody that went to the University of Windsor and took uh, exercise phys with Dr. Keno, 
And I don't know why I still remember this shit after like 15 years being out of school, but I just love this so much that I retain it, I guess. But I think it was, I think you need 15 grams of protein to elicit a muscle protein synthesis response from the body. So like 15 grams stimulates protein synthesis. Anything below doesn't really, I think. Um, but I could be wrong. And maybe research has been different now because it's been 15 years that I've, I've taken that class. But, you know, you, you need X amount of, of, of grams of protein to elicit that response. So people think, hey, like if I'm going to train in a fasted state, I'm going to preserve my muscle by taking a BCAAs while I'm training, which makes sense, right? Like I'm going to preserve my muscle, take some BCAAs. It'll sort of spark the protein synthesis and I can get yoked and shredded. But here's the thing, guys and gals. And I said it, I said this fucking 20 minutes ago and, and it's like sometimes people are missing the forest through the trees if you're not taking in one gram per pound of body weight of protein and you're not in a surplus to gain weight i.e gain some muscle you can drink all the fucking bc double a's you want and not do a fucking thing and not build your muscle, right? Now, the only, like, the only way, so, so like, I guess BCAs do work. They do work for the specific person that needs them. Let, let, let's say you are a high level uh, physique competitor, you're a bodybuilder, you're stepping up on stage. Every little thing is gonna add a percent over a course of a year. So, like, they're probably gonna take, especially when they're in the, um, uh, the last stages of their prep, they're going to be in a cutting phase and their goal is to preserve every little ounce of muscle that they've worked super hard to maintain or to get or to work for throughout the year. So, so they might sip on BC double A's because they're in a, in a strict caloric deficit. So they're going to play around with some things that are going to help them preserve muscle. But for the average person, like I remember um, this is going back a probably four or five years ago. I remember having uh, this lady start in a program and it was like a six week challenge that we were running at the time. Shake my head, cringe. The fact that I was even doing challenges back then makes me fucking angry. But anyways, it was a six week or four week challenge, you know, and, and her goals were like general fitness. Most, most people that walk into a, a commercial gym or, or any type of studio, they typically want fat loss and some muscle toning and just longevity. Okay. So she comes in first day. It's like, yeah, my husband made me drink these BC double A's because, um, you know, it'll help me preserve muscle. I'm just like, I'm like, cool. Like, I'm like, yeah, good job. Listen, if it makes her work hard, great. Doesn't matter. But like, it's just people, people are doing things that they think they need, but they really don't when they don't even have the basics down. Right. So, um, branch amino acids don't do much. If your training sucks, if your nutrition's poor, if you're not eating in the surplus, if you're not taking in, you know, enough protein, you can drink it, but you're not going to get shredded because the guy on the box or the, or the girl in the bottle has a six pack. It just doesn't work that way. So listen, if you need to drink it because it tastes good and it makes you hydrated, great. Um, but again, like there are some nuanced things that, you know, they can work for, 
but for the vast majority of the people, um, you probably don't need it. You probably don't need it. Um, I mean, like, I don't take it. But again, like, I'm not that big and shredded. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm going to start fucking 2022. My New Year resolution is to take in BCAAs and get yoked. Watch out, guys. God, I'm going to get so shredded and big from BCAAs. Next question. Okay. Okay. This one's not bad. I mean, I never used this, um, but I know a lot of coaches that have used it. So this is more for like the, the coaches. And unless you're well-versed in training, you might not, you might know what this is. So McGill's big three worked for everything. Okay. So let me unpack this. So for those of you that are in the know and that are coaches, I'm sure you've heard of the McGill uh, big three. Dr. Stuart McGill, for those of you that don't know, is one of the leading researchers in um, spine mechanics and injury prevention with the spine. Now, there's a lot of kind of convoluted stuff about the way he does his research. And um, like, I was never a big fan per se of his research, not because I don't think it was valuable. Uh, I'm just more of a real world kind of guy. I like putting experience and um, experience and just seeing what works and what doesn't work. Uh, and McGill, so Dr. Stuart McGill, because he's, 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 he's smart. He's got a lot of good stuff that, that I think is, is valuable as a resource, but he was all about, Hey, how do you protect the spine from injury? And where a lot of his research is flawed from what I can gather is that he's, he's using cadaver spines, meaning dead people's spines. And if you start bending enough times, the spine, it's going to snap because you don't have a nervous system attached to the spine. You just have a bone that with enough pressure, with enough shear forces, you can, you can break it. Right. So anyways, get, so Dr. McGill is one of the leading researchers in back health and spine health, all that stuff. And he came up with the McGill big three. And these were three exercises that um, you would use to strengthen your low back and your spine. And like, I don't really use them in this context. I use maybe one of them out of the three and maybe I should search what they are, but I'm going to take a gander as what they are. I know what they are, but I might get this wrong, but probably not. I probably know what they are. The middle, and because I don't use them, I don't, I'm not really well familiar with them, but it's the, uh, the side plank, the McGill curl up, and then the bird dog. Okay. So let's talk about these three movements. So now the side plank, I use a lot. I love the side plank. Um, but I don't use it as, um, as like a finisher as most trainers do, or like, we're going to burn the core and let's do a fucking side plank. I use it more as a teaching tool. Um, and as a way to get people to understand, um, how to create tension in, in, in this anti-rotation standpoint sort of thing. So like anti-lateral flexion. Um, and I kind of use it in conjunction with planks and dead bugs. And side plank, I don't just use it for the sake of side plank. I do it in combination of other movements to teach them different ways of bracing and stability points. So, you know, like the side plank is very valuable. Uh, I tend to believe that uh, more people can benefit from a modified side plank than a full side plank. And then learning how to create as much tension as they can through their glutes and by reaching with their opposite arm. I might make a video about this one day, but um, you know, when I say modified plank, starting from your knees. So the pivot point is your knee 
instead of having your legs fully extended. Most people can get into a non-modified side plank with their legs straight, but they bastardize it. It's fucking like they just hang out there and say, oh, yeah, this is hard. What I like to do is I like to get them set up so that it's a modified version so they can get into the position that I want them to get into, teach them what they should feel, and then we can progress to the more quote-unquote challenging part of the side plank, which is a long reliever with your legs extended. So side plank, I think, is great. The McGill curl-up, I believe this one here is when um, you are on your back, you have uh, both legs, or you have one leg straight, and the other one is bent with, with, with your foot on the floor. Okay, so like just one knee is bent, foot on the floor, other leg is extended, and then I believe you have one of your hands behind the small of your back, and as you curl up just ever so slightly, you're trying to press your low back into your hand, and then you're just sort of going to engage the upper abs. It's going to kind of teach you how to stay braced in that position. I never use that. And I remember like men's health. Or I forget. I forget what what episode or, or what um what publication it was, but it was like how to protect your back during uh, sit-ups. Like the best sit-up you're not doing. It was like the McGill the, the, the McGill sit-up. I mean, I've I've never used it. I'm sure it works, but I can find a, a, a few other things that work better than that. Uh, and the last one was the bird dog. Now, I know a lot of people use the bird dog, but I never loved, I never liked, I despised the bird dog for a few reasons. Number one, most people do not know how to perform a bird dog. So they bastardize it. They don't really do anything other than just fuck around with their limbs. Now, now for those of you that don't know the 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 bird dog is when you're kneeling on all fours and then you kick out one arm. So opposite arm kicks out and your opposite leg kicks out and you're trying to stabilize yourself from falling over. So like it's working on stability of your pelvis and your rib cage. And so like to me, the bird dog, because it's bastardized and most people just don't care enough to take the time to put the intention behind what the bird dog is meant for. I don't like it. I, I just don't like it. There's there's many other things that I would do, like a dead bug. A dead bug to me is a way better um, exercise to teach people how to stack their ribs over the pelvis than a bird dog. Now, the bird dog can be a progression from a dead bug because instead of having um, your back touching the ground with biofeedback where you can kind of sense what your core is doing. The bird dog is you're kind of in open space and you need to control it yourself. So I understand that point, but I just, I just don't like it at all. And I, and I, and I never use it. I will never program it. I don't care how many people say it's great. I just don't do it. But so anyway, so, so what, what this person saying in this myth is that, Hey, like the McGill big three worked for everything. And this, th these three movements might work well in a rehab setting for somebody who is very deconditioned, for somebody who has never trained in their life. It might give them a, a general understanding of stability through the spine. Somebody's coming back from injury, maybe. But like I, I would consider these three movements very low level. It, it's not going to give you... Once you can master these movements, you're not going to get more gain from them, right? But people seem to think that like ab training or core training, it's like 
the more burn, the better. Like, like once you understand how to stabilize your spine, you need to progressively overload it if you want to build some type of core strength and or quote unquote six pack. Um, and the reason why the, the, the McGill three don't work for everything is because let's say you have this super strong jacked woman. She's a power lifter, deadlifts, 400 pounds, benches, 225, squats, 365. She's like, like you, you could say that she's got a very strong core. Okay. And she might tweak her back because she's human and maybe she didn't sleep well and maybe she's been under stress and maybe, 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 maybe all this kind of stuff. So she tweaks her back. She might go to a physio or a chiropractor to get some treatment and more, most often than not, you'll always get the physio that says, you should do these exercises to rehab your low back to get strong. What's like, fuck, she already deadlifts 400 pounds. She already squats 365. How much stronger should her core get? Like the bird dog ain't going to do shit for her low back strength when she's pretty strong in her midsection anyway. So that's where sometimes the, the, the big three needs some context, maybe from an untrained individual who um, has never trained and is, is going through a rehab. Maybe these are a good exercise uh, progression to get them to understand how to stabilize their spine. Because a lot of people don't really know what's, what how to stabilize their spine and how to keep their ribs over pelvis. Like that requires some, some effort and some thoughtfulness and they have to be taught that. So maybe the McGill 3 can do that. In my opinion, in my experience, I don't use the Miguel Big 3. I should probably make the Patella Big 3. Fuck it. No, I'm not. Um, I, I use other movements to teach them what the Miguel Big 3 do. Now, again, people use it and find success. I don't care for it. That's, that's kind of where, where I'm at with it. Um, let's get the next one. So strength ranges of 6 reps and hypertrophy range of 12. Okay, so I'm going to kind of go into this into more detail. So the myth is strength ranges of six reps to get so six reps to get strong, and then ranges of 12 reps for hypertrophy. Now, so gaining strength and gaining muscle um, kind of work on a continuum and on a spectrum. And uh, if you look at, you know, like, strength programs, if you're, if you're looking to get strong in the deadlift, the squat, the bench press, anything above 75% of your one rep max is where you're going to gain strength, right? So um, you can think of rep ranges between one to five reps, you know, heck, even fucking six reps, because here it says six reps, but like one to five reps at loads above 75% of your one rep max typically yield over a course of time strength gain. And you'll always hear people talk about also like, you know, high rep training. So like, you know, like you should do your hypertrophy, you know, between eight to 12, 12 to 15 reps, because, you know, more reps equals more muscle building. And, and this is where like training gets kind of nuanced or people don't understand the principles um, that are tried, tested and true and that hold true before they get into all this other shit that probably doesn't matter. Again, most people miss the forest through the trees because they're looking for the easy way, the quick fix out for the most part. So there's a few ways we build muscle. The first way is through mechanical tension. The other one is through muscle damage. 
Now, when we go through mechanical tension, this is where we would consider the traditional way of like lifting heavy weights. When you can create tension with the muscle, over time, it'll stimulate to build muscle. Um, from the muscle damage standpoint, when you get the micro tearing of the muscle, you know, and so when you think of like eccentric based training, so like, you know, you know, when um, you and your bros and you're doing like a bicep curl, but then you do like the eccentric where you're going super slow on the way down in your bicep curl. That is what we tend to see uh, the most muscle damage. And that's when we get a lot more of the soreness so that the soreness that we get from, from, from uh, after a hard workout is the micro tearing of, of the muscle fibers. Now, do you need, do you always need muscle damage to gain muscle? No, because we can create mechanical tension and mechanical tension doesn't always yield damage to the muscle. If we only focus on like slow eccentrics and damaging the muscle, it's a very laborious process for your body to recover from your recovery has to be, um, a lot better. You have to sleep better. You have to hydrate. You have to nourish your body a lot better because it's very taxing on the system. So we generally have a combination of, of both. We need mechanical tension and muscle damage. Now, the way we do mechanical tension is through uh, loading the muscle through its intended range of motion, through progressively overloading it through more weight, more time under tension, um, or a combination of, of, of both. So when we think of rep ranges of let's say one to five, which is generally like your strength based. If you're a beginner, you can probably gain some muscle mass doing that because you're overloading the system through mechanical tension over time to build more muscle. But as you get more advanced, you're going to have to now get more into what we consider like a bodybuilding hypertrophy based, uh, hypertrophy based training cycle, which is rep ranges between 812, 815, 820, whatever you want to call it. But here's the kicker with this. It's like, just because you're hitting 12 reps, 15 reps, 20 reps, doesn't mean you're necessarily stimulating muscle growth. And here's why. Because most people, not everybody, but most people, they assume, well, if the rep range is 15, I might have to do light weight because they always, you know, light weight for getting cut and like heavy weight to get bulky when what really matters is the output. Are you able to push through fatigue? Are you able to um, push near failure? Especially when you get near um, like 20 reps. If you're doing 20 rep sets and by rep 18, 19, and 20, you're not gassed and you're kind of like, oh, that wasn't so bad. You, you, you didn't do anything else other than just create more muscular endurance and you worked on the endurance of the muscle. You didn't really challenge it to stimulate muscle growth. So when you're doing sets of 20, let's say, you're going to have to approach near failure, if not failure, in order to elicit that muscle building property, to, to stimulate muscle growth. If you're going to do reps of, let's say, one to five, one to six reps, you, you don't have to reach that much failure to get the same response in muscle building because you are now increasing the load and you can, you know, work within two reps in reserve and not really hit failure, but you're still creating that mechanical tension in, in the system. So this is where people get kind of 
weirded out or, 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 or kind of fail with their muscle building is that output is always going to be the driving force in if you're simulating muscle growth. So if you're going to do sets of 12, they better be fucking challenging. You, you shouldn't be able, like by reps 10, 11, and 12, you should be struggling to get those reps in if you want to, if your goal is to build muscle. Um, if you're doing 20 reps, like I said, like I'm thinking of like 20 reps on a hack squat. Man, reps 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 should be a grinder. Like you should be hitting it hard. Now, again, like you can always, um, there, there's always some context into this, right? Like if you're advanced versus you, like you're, you're going to have to vary that stimulus. But for the most part, I, I'd like to see people train a little bit more hard. That way they can get what they want out of their training. And that's where like, and I'm going to go off tangent here, but even that's why like exercise selection is, is more important as well than like all these functional type of patterns that, that people try to get into because it looks cool at the gym. Like focus on things that are tried, tested and true things that load the muscle the way they're intended to. That way you can stimulate as much muscle growth as you can. And now at the same time, you can do all these, um, bodybuilding to sell of workouts where you're reaching near failure but if your recovery is shit you're not consuming enough calories you're not consuming enough protein you're not going to build that much muscle you still have to create the environment for your body to build and that's why we always say the first pillar is getting your lifestyle in order make your lifestyle match the goals that you want otherwise you're going to just be a smaller version and again, like like if your goal is to get shredded and lean, yeah, maybe you can be more on a deficit or maintenance phase, but you're not going to build the most amount of muscles. And, that, and that's going to be a, a whole other story that we're not going to get into on this podcast, but um, we'll talk about that uh, on another episode because I don't want to get too, too crazy on that. So like, yes, uh, to get back to the, to the point here, rep ranges of like one to five generally are strength based. You can still build muscle on those. And if you're going to do rep ranges of 12, you can still get strong in, 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 in that rep range. And you can also, and you will also build muscle if you're pushing near failure, if you're allowing yourself to, um, to, to go through like a little bit more pain, I guess, like good pain, not bad pain. Cause we're gonna talk about this in a sec. Um, can we have a few more here and then we're probably gonna uh, end it cause it's, we're already what an hour and so in, uh, let's continue on. So the next one, this is a really good one. Um, cardio was the fastest slash smartest way to weight loss. Now, oh, this one's again, like I just, I'm going to talk about this again. Um, people miss the forest through the trees. And that's going to be like my tagline when they miss the forest through the trees. Um, so weight loss, or in this case, like fat loss, you're going to have to really figure out that, or you have to understand that fat loss, weight loss is dependent on energy balance. So taking in less calories than you're, uh, than you're burning and that you're, you're going to get weight loss. Now, uh, most people want fat loss, right? They want to get rid of the chub around the midsection. They want to, um, you know, lean out so they can reveal their muscle. And the, the first thing that people think about is I need cardio to burn fat. Now, cardio doesn't necessarily burn fat per se. That whole thing with the fat loss zone, which is so, so the way 
uh, from a physiology standpoint, we will burn fat at a low heart rate. So right now that I'm sitting down, technically I would be considered in a fat burning zone because I'm oxidizing free fatty acids in my bloodstream, right? So without getting too crazy and physiological and, 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 and talk about physiology here is that when I have a reduced insulin, so if my insulin's low after being in a fasted state for a couple of hours or so, it's gonna, so how can I, again, I'm going back to like my, my human phys class, which I think is great that I'm actually using this. Um, the way my professor taught me back in exercise phys was that, was that fat oxidation and um, gaining or, or, or um, uh, like weight gaining was reciprocal, right? So it's like one doesn't turn off and one turns on and the other turns off and the other one turns off. It's reciprocal based off of your hormonal uh, profile. So um, in theory right now, so, so we oxidize fat in very low, intense, long duration um, um, movements. Okay, so if you think of like a marathon run or like long duration cardio, because you need sustained energy, you oxidize fat. So you're burning fat as fuel to sustain for over an hour. Whereas if I do, um, if I do like high intensity interval training, I'm, I'm reducing fat oxidation and I'm utilizing, um, the glycolytic system, which is the quick release energy from, or, or, or the carbohydrate or, or the glycogen stored in my muscles as fuel, but that only lasts for two minutes tops. So the oxidative system and the glycolytic system are reciprocal. They sort of go up and down based off of what we do. And, and, and if you think of it from like a, um, from a workout standpoint, it's gonna, so let's say you're working out for an hour. Well, you're gonna go through both of those systems periodically up and down. You know, uh, maybe during the warm up, you'll be more, um, you know, oxidative. So it's gonna be sort of here and then your glycolytic is gonna be a little bit lower. And then as you increase the intensity, you're gonna be more glycolytic and then your oxidative is gonna, so like it's reciprocal. It's gonna go up and down depending on what the intensity is of your of your body, how much fuel you have in your body, uh, are you glycogen depleted, all that stuff. Like it's, it's reciprocal. So it's not like all or none, it's, like, like your body's smart and knows how to adapt to many, many stimuli. So, um, so people think that, Hey, if I'm in a fat burning zone, I'm going to burn all this fat, which yes, the fat burning zone, you're burning fat because you have free fatty acids flowing into your bloodstream to be oxidated as fuel. However, it's negligible because you're not going to be taking in, you're not going to be burning that many calories or grams of fat through your bloodstream in a 30 minute cardio session. You're going to expend energy, which can increase the total amount of calories that you're burning in a, over the course of a day, but it's not going to burn physical fat. And if it does, and I'll keep coming back to this, what's dependent on this is the fact that you still need to be in a deficit, a caloric deficit throughout the entire 24 hours of your day. If you look at it from a, from a daily perspective, really from a weekly or a monthly perspective, or a yearly, like you need to be in a deficit in order to burn fat. So whether you burn that fat through the fat burning zone in one hour cardio session, or if you burn it by just being in a deficit, 
your body's going to oxidate, oxidize um, free fatty acids regardless. Okay, so like what cardio does is it just improves cardiac output. It improves um, your cardiovascular system. It, it enables you to have more of a work capacity so you can actually have some fitness for your training, right? Like if you're the person that is puffing and puffing after, you know, doing just like a set of five squats because you have a poor cardiovascular system, you probably need to do more cardio so that you can sustain training. And that's why most people in the beginning of a program, they won't burn a lot of calories because they don't have the fitness, the ability to perform exercise at a very high output. As they gain their general physical preparedness, as they improve that, as they get more of a work capacity, then they can increase the output. And when you increase the output, you will expend a lot of energy. But that's not the only thing that matters in weight loss, fat loss, and or in this case, like body composition, is you have to look at your recovery, your nutrition needs, your lifestyle habits. It all plays a big role. And that's something that we do work a lot here at Common with a lot of our clients, whether you're doing a Rebel Series, whether you're working with me remotely, whether you're working with me privately, we try to figure out what's the best approach for you at this specific time. And then as you adapt, as you change, as you make progress, then we start to introduce more and more and more. So cardio is a very useful thing for general health, fitness, and longevity, um, and cardiovascular health, and it will increase your total energy expenditure. Just don't think of it as, I'm going to burn the most amount of fat doing this, because the fat burning zone doesn't really matter. Um, another one, fasted cardio being the secret sauce. So I, I spoke about this the other day on my story as, as one of my um, uh, questions. And, and this kind of goes along with my last thing about cardio is the fastest, smartest way of weight loss. So again, fasted cardio in a nutshell before we, we, we end this. So fasted cardio, um, okay, so let's say you wake up in the morning and you go right to the gym and you hop on the Stairmaster for like 45 minutes. And you're like, oh my God, dude, I just read this article on men's health and this influencer that I follow does fasted cardio and she's got a big booty and she is lean. I'm going to do fasted cardio because it's the best way to burn fat. Yes, in theory, because you are in a fasted state, because your insulin levels are low, because you're probably glycogen depleted or maybe close to being depleted and then the, you know, the, the, the first 10, 15 minutes of your cardio is going to be burning off whatever glycogen is stored, and then you'll be in this fasted, fat-burning state. Yes, maybe that's true. But you're not going to be burning that much fat in those 45 minutes that it's going to make a big impact. Because at the end of the day, so, so if you do your fasted cardio in the morning, you burn however many percentages of grams of fat in your bloodstream, if you're in a surplus of calories, guess what? You're not going to be burning any fat whatsoever, right? That just, it's common sense. However, let's say you're a physique competitor, you're a bodybuilder, you're at the last stretch of your uh, prep and you have to step on stage in a month. They're probably going to do whatever it takes for them to get every little ounce of fat off their body because they're meticulous that way. They need that those percentages, that, that, that 0.1%, that 0.5% 
difference that's going to make them a champion versus the guy next to them, right? We're, we're talking like very semantics here, very like detailed things. But for the, for, for the majority of us, fasted cardio just makes you do your cardio with less energy, right? Like you're depleted. And, and maybe even if you are in a deficit, what's really making you burn fat? What's really making you get leaner? The fact that you're doing fasted cardio or the fact that you're in a deficit? I'm going to place my bet that because you're in a deficit, you're going to be burning fat. Now, will you burn an extra ounce of fat? Maybe, but like, again, it's, 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 you're missing the forest through the trees. Like I would rather get in an extra hour of sleep in the morning than to wake up at fucking bump fuck 5am in the morning to do my fucking cardio. I would rather just reduce my calories by a hundred grams uh, by a hundred calories instead of wasting myself, my, my fucking 45 minutes to burn a hundred calories on the fucking Stairmaster. Like you just have to sort of figure out what works for your life. If you're bending over backwards to do this fasted cardio, but you hate it, ask yourself, why are you doing it? Does it really make a difference when you could probably do better things, things that are going to help you burn fat in the long run with some little tweaks here and there of your lifestyle. So again, like none of this is right or wrong to do, but just understand why you're doing it. And if you don't know why you're doing it, ask yourself why and get the knowledge and get the resources and, and try to understand why all this stuff is happening. So, um, I guess we're going to wrap it up here because I'm going to be talking for, for, for a little bit. If you enjoyed this podcast, um, let me know. You can always comment on, uh, on Spotify, but this episode is going to air the week between, uh, Christmas and new year. This is the last episode of, of 2021. And I am looking forward to growing this podcast even greater in, in 2022. We're going to have a blast with it. You can catch us on YouTube. So the video format will be on YouTube um, or on Spotify. If you're driving long hours or if you're at home, chilling, making dinner, you can listen to this podcast on Spotify. Um, I appreciate you guys. And uh, I can't wait to see you guys next year. You know, that's what next week. So um, I'll see you guys next year. And remember, as always, much love. Keep raging. Peace.